Chapter 37 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Colleen McMahon. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 37 by Thomas Burns. Common Housebreakers. Thieves who laugh at locks and bolts. Receivers of stolen goods. How offense is conducted. The housebreaker and house sneak are the most numerous of the thieving fraternity. Locks and bolts cannot be relied upon as protection against these men, and there are but few dwellings that are proof against their assaults. It is a popular belief with most people that their homes are perfectly secure when the doors and windows are fastened. The average sneak thief laughs at the flimsy barriers and can undo every one of them with a few simple instruments which he carries in his vest pocket. Even the chain bolt, which has been considered so formidable, is no protection at all when pitted against the skill and science of this class of rogues. When massive bank vaults offer no serious obstacles that the trained and experienced burglar cannot overcome, how can it be expected that ordinary contrivances for the security of houses should be effectual? While the operations of bank burglars are comparatively few and infrequent, on account of the multiplied risks and difficulties to be encountered, a well-organized army of sneak thieves and housebreakers carry on their operations with a confidence born of repeated success. In this army are some daring and desperate rascals, who often enter dwellings in the nighttime in search of plunder, with masks on their faces and murder in their hearts. Sometimes night robberies are planned beforehand, but many are committed at haphazard. From servants or others employed in or about a residence, confederates of these thieves collect the information they desire. The manner of entering the premises depends upon its internal arrangements. In some cases, the front basement door is entered by a false key, in others, the rogues climb up the front of the house and enter the second-story window, and still in others, an entrance is effected from the rear. Once inside, the burglar ransacks the apartments in which he expects to obtain the most booty. He works expeditiously, going through an occupied chamber as carefully as he would an unoccupied one. Often these criminals disturb the sleeper, but the latter is generally so frightened at the presence of the robber that no resistance is offered. Housebreakers are not brave men by any means, and only when cornered do they become bold and desperate in their anxiety to evade a long sentence. The noise made by rats has on more than one occasion scared burglars away from silverware worth hundreds and thousands of dollars, which they hastily abandoned after having collected and packed it, ready for removal. Three or four of these men have been known to band themselves together, but it is not uncommon for a desperate man to work entirely on his own hook. Such a thief was killed by falling through a house in Brooklyn a few years since, who for years before his death took no one into his confidence, but planned and executed his own robberies. He gathered all the information that he desired from the columns of the morning newspapers. He made a specialty of robbing young married couples of their jewels and wedding presents. A marriage notice or a report of a wedding was the only news this rascal cared to read, and he gloated over the announcement that the pair had received costly presents from their friends. When he ascertained where the couple had taken a house, either while they were off on their wedding trip 
or had returned to housekeeping, he hired an attic room on the same block and soon paid the newly wedded pair a midnight visit. He invariably secured the prize he was in quest of, but after a long career of crime he died, as most thieves do, a violent death. Becoming reckless by his success, he undertook to ransack a house while in a state of intoxication. He secured property worth several thousand dollars, and as he was carrying it over the rooftops, he fell through a new building into the cellar. The groans of the thief attracted attention, and he was found with the stolen jewelry lying beside him. He was seriously injured and was removed to a hospital, where he died the next day. Another well-known housebreaker was in the habit of attending all the fashionable balls. He never went there for pleasure, but always on business. The rogue, with envious eyes, watched the ladies bedecked with expensive jewelry and wearing necklaces and pins set with brilliance. When the ball was over, he would, with the assistance of a companion, dog his intended victims to their homes. He would keep a constant watch upon the house or its inmates for several days, and if in the meantime the jewels had not been taken to a safe deposit vault, the robber would conclude that the lady was in the habit of keeping her valuables in the house. When the opportunity offered, the thief, under some pretext or other, would make his way into the premises in search of the diamonds or jewelry he had first seen in the ballroom, and he generally succeeded in getting them. Second-story thieves are another order of criminals. After locating a house that they intend to rob in the early evening, they watch until the family are downstairs at dinner. Then a young man with the agility of a cat crawls up the front of the dwelling and enters the second-story window. He rifles all the rooms in the upper part of the house in a few minutes, and with the booty noiselessly descends the stairs and leaves the house by the front door. In several cases, however, the robber has been known to drop the property out of a front window to his confederates on the street. This is only done when he has become alarmed by hearing footsteps on the stairs and is forced to retreat in the same manner that he entered the premises. Other thieves who also pillage houses during the supper hour pick the lock of the front door and steal in without making any noise. They wear rubbers or woolen shoes and occasionally succeed in making large hauls. Then there are the several types of sneaks who, under all sorts of pretexts, manage to get inside of a dwelling for a few minutes without attracting attention and remain just long enough to steal whatever they can lay their hands upon. Some of these go about as peddlers, piano tuners, health and building inspectors, sewing machine or insurance agents, and in various other roles. They do not confine their operations to apartment houses or dwellings, but also rob business buildings in the daytime. Cash, jewelry, and valuables is the plunder most sought by the leading professional rogues of this class, but those of the lower grades seem to be satisfied with more bulky plunder. Young men make the most daring house thieves, but in the ranks may be found old criminals who have passed the best years of their life in crime. The class of thieves devoting themselves to robbing rooms in hotels and in fashionable boarding houses operate according to circumstances and always have their wits about them for any unexpected emergency. The successful ones are men of respectable appearance, good address, and cool and daring fellows. Some follow their nefarious vocation only in the morning, others in the afternoon, and still others operate at night. In their methods of procedure, each of the subdivisions has other distinguishing peculiarities. A great deal of ingenuity in getting into rooms is not infrequently shown by these men, who are ever ready to take desperate chances.
Until he has accomplished his purpose, the hotel thief pursues his prey from one hotel to another with a persistency that knows no faltering. When he has squandered his ready cash and riotous living, and his treasury needs replenishing, he makes it his business to scan the newspapers carefully and keep himself posted on the latest arrivals, the rooms they occupy, and other data of interest. The coming and going of professionals, particularly female theatrical stars, salesmen, bankers, and bridal parties, and all persons likely to carry valuable jewelry and trinkets, or a large amount of money, are objects of his special solicitude. When the unsuspecting prey, fatigued by travel, gives proof of his unconsciousness by deep, stertorous breathing, the hotel thief steals silently from his hiding place. A slight push may let him into the apartment, or it may be necessary to use a gimlet and a small piece of crooked wire to slide back the bolt, or a pair of nippers to turn the key left in the lock on the inside of the door. Sometimes as many as a dozen rooms in the same hotel have been plundered in one night, and none of the watchmen saw or heard the thief. The hotel thief can carry his entire outfit in his vest pocket, and can laugh in his sleeve at the common bolts and bars. The shooting back of the old-fashioned slide bolt from the outside of the apartment was, for many years, a bewildering mystery. A piece of crooked wire inserted through the keyhole by the nimble rogue made the bolt worthless, and a turn of the knob was all that was required to open the door. It takes only a few minutes for an expert hotel thief to enter a room. After he has reached the door of the apartment in which the weary traveler is sleeping soundly, he takes from his pocket a pair of small, slender nippers, a bent piece of wire, and a piece of silk thread. These are the only tools some thieves use. Inserting the nippers into the keyhole, he catches the end of the key, then a twist shoots back the lock bolt, and another leaves the key in a position from which it can easily be displaced. Should the slumber of the occupant of the room be disturbed by the falling of the key on the carpet or the floor, time has given him to fall asleep again. By pressing on the door, the thief next locates the bolt. A piece of thread is attached to the bent point of the wire, making a sort of bow, and after crooking the wire to suit, it is pushed through the keyhole and carried up or down to the bolt. The looped head throws the pin of the bolt into place. The string is moved sideways until it grapples the pin, and the bolt is slid back out of the nosing. The door yields to a slight pressure, and the completion of the task is deftly and expeditiously performed. Some thieves always stop to lock the room door behind them. Many of them spend their leisure time in fixing rooms in hotels. This is necessary in first-class establishments where the room doors are provided with improved locks and bolts. One of these, known as the thumb bolt, requires to be tampered with beforehand. The shrewd robber, while occupying a room as a guest, prepares the lock so it will aid him in his future operations. Removing the screws, he takes off the thumb plate and files a slot in the spring bar. Then he replaces the plate and screws and marks on the outside of the door by a slight indentation in the woodwork or by some other sign the exact point at which to strike the filed slot when the door is locked. Returning on the night of the robbery with the only tools necessary, a common brad awl and a pair of nippers, he pierces the soft wood at the proper point and then, by pushing the awl further in, strikes the slot and is able to noiselessly turn the bolt. He then uses his nippers to unlock the door. The thief watches the hotel register and awaits his prey. If some well-known person, 
in the habit of wearing costly jewelry, is registered as occupying one of the fixed rooms, then the thief engages an apartment on the same floor and during the nighttime consummates the long-planned crime. Another plan, and the one that is generally adapted by rogues who prowl about hotel corridors in the daytime, is to draw the screws of the nosing of the bolt and lock. The screw holes are then bored larger. The screws are replaced after being thoroughly moistened and maintain a sufficient grip not to be displaced by any ordinary jar. When the wood becomes dry, the door can be easily forced in without trouble or the least danger from noise. The boarding house thief is always a smooth and entertaining talker who invariably makes acquaintances in new quarters in short order. In a pleasant chat with the inquisitive landlady, he generally succeeds in gleaning all the information he desires about the other guests of the house. Most women are fond of displaying their jewels and valuables at fashionable boarding houses. While amusing his newly made acquaintances with his laughable stories, the astute robber is, at the same time, making a thorough survey. His covetous eyes never miss the flash of diamonds, and should he be in doubt as to their genuineness, he is only to speak of the matter to one of the friends of the wearer, and he will be told when and where they were bought and the price paid for them. After the rogue has secured a full inventory of the jewels and valuable trinkets kept in the several rooms of the house, he is ready for business and simply awaits opportunity. While the other guests are at breakfast or dinner, he remains upstairs, and the thorough manner in which he rummages the several apartments in so short a time is surprising. Before his victims have finished their morning or evening meal, the thief's work is complete, and with well-filled valleys, he slips unnoticed out of the house. Probably before the robbery is discovered, he is on board a train speeding his way to some other city to dispose of his plunder and resume his career of crime. Thieves of this sort are troublesome to track, but when run down at last, there is no end to the number of complainants that come forward to prosecute them. Without a safe market for his ill-gotten property, the business of the burglar and thief would be unprofitable. The buying of stolen goods is not a crime of recent origin, but dates back to the very beginning of thievery. A receiver of stolen property is known among criminals as a fence. Receivers have their grades and classes. Some make it a business to purchase only bonds and securities. Others purchase diamonds and jewelry. Others buy silks and costly dry goods and still others by plunder of any description. The receiver in the habit of handling bonds and securities could not be induced to risk a speculation in bulky plunder. These offenders are extremely careful in their negotiations with professional rogues. They place but little faith in the word of a thief and are naturally suspicious of all persons with whom they have any dealings. After a large robbery, the burglars do not, as is generally supposed, cart the plunder to the house or store of the receiver. Instead, they quietly remove it to a safe place of storage, generally in some neighboring city or town. Wives whose husbands are undergoing imprisonment are invariably made the custodians of loot. The burglars have confidence in these women, and so have the receivers. The booty is conveyed to their apartments in trunks and does not attract any attention. When it has been placed in charge of the wife of an imprisoned confederate, the fence is notified and samples of the goods are submitted for the receiver's inspection. Should he desire an examination of all the property, he sends a trusted appraiser to look it over. And should it prove to be as represented, a settlement is effected and the trunks are reshipped to the rooms of another thief's wife. The latter's unlucky husband, who is doing time, 
was perhaps a favorite with the receiver, and the woman is always a willing party to transactions of this sort. Receivers, while they rarely pay more than one-fourth of the value of the stolen article, run no risks. They never make a settlement with the thieves until the proceeds of the robbery have been removed a second time, and to a place, the location of which the gang they are dealing with knows nothing at all about. There are two reasons why the receiver is so careful and keeps the final hiding place a profound secret from the rogues. One is because he fears treachery at the hands of the robbers, and the other because he does not desire to incur any loss. In event of the stolen goods being seized in transit from the storage place of the thieves to that of the receiver, the loss falls upon the former. The other reason is to prevent them, should there be any bickering as to the price, from betraying the buyer. The simple testimony of the self-confessed thief that he sold the stolen goods to a certain person would be of no value in a legal sense without the corroborative proof of the seizure of the plunder. On account of the receiver's guarded manner of doing business, this is never possible, and the moment that the goods come into his possession, all tags and marks that would lead to their identification are removed and destroyed. Receivers in large cities are able to conduct their nefarious transactions without much danger of detection. To conceal their shady speculations, they engage in some legitimate business and conduct a fancy goods or jewelry store in a business district and on apparently strict and honest business principles. These are the class that purchase from shoplifters, pickpockets, and dishonest employees. To watch the patrons of these stores would be a task that would yield but meager results. Professional criminals shun these places, and the men and women who sell the proceeds of their pilferings to such receivers are only petty thieves. While seemingly purchasing some article and earnestly talking with the proprietor about its price, the thief is really making a bargain for its sale. He never carries on his negotiations in the presence of a stranger. The goods bought by the receiver under such conditions are never offered for sale in these places, but are disposed of to other unscrupulous shopkeepers and peddlers who loudly and constantly boast of their own honesty. There is a class of receivers that is constantly on the lookout for bargains, to whom pickpockets and sneak thieves can safely dispose of stolen watches and trinkets at prices much below their intrinsic worth. The establishments of pawnbrokers, who advance loans on jewelry and clothing, are generally patronized by young rogues, with whom my uncle drives sharp bargains. Old rogues, by melting watch cases, run but little chance of detection and net a large profit by the sale of the metal to reputable firms. A smart receiver who deals in stolen jewelry reduces all small articles of jewelry into metal as soon as bought. The most annoying class are the second-hand dealers, who buy and sell stolen wearing apparel. They invariably have friends in another city, so that as soon as plunder has been bought, it is at once shipped away to be disposed of elsewhere. End of chapter 37